0: I think that this has to be the beginning of something that we see all over the country and all over the the world. We have to take back our families. Too many people would complain, 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 but we don't know what to do. And my attitude is, let's all stop complaining and let's be constructive and do something. Do we really believe that everyone has the potential to become a great saint? Are we capable of truly discovering the incredible
1: potential that often lies hidden in each person on their walk of faith? In today's episode, legionary priest, psychologist, moral theologian, and ministry director, Father
0: John Hopkins, shares his vision of how lay people can become missionary disciples that will transform the world. The power that's already within you can do infinitely more than you could ever imagine or ask. And that's not just for priests, that's for each layperson, when you think about that the power that's already within them, which is the Holy Spirit. And we need to stop blocking God. If we just do that, not block him from his initiatives, not block him from the love that he wants to express through us, not block God from his vision for the future, for our church and for our culture. Wow. God wants to change the world through us. He wishes to move us from doubt and apprehension to fullness and
1: joy, so we can play our part in the history of salvation. This is Living the Call. Father John Hopkins, God bless you. Welcome to the show.
0: Great to be here.
1: Great to have you. I heard a little something before we started this that I had no idea about, so I thought we might start there. Hockey
0: player. Yes. When you grow up in Syracuse, New York, and it seems like you have six months of winter, you better enjoy winter. Enjoy winter. And we had a pond outside of our house, and we played every afternoon for three, four hours. Wow. And so that was, I wanted to be an NHL hockey player. And that was my goal, and that was my dream. Mm. Was that...
1: um Upstate, like, I mean, in Syracuse or just upstate New York somewhere?
0: Outside of Syracuse in a little town called Cazenovia. Okay. And there's a lake there and we were about a mile from the lake. So My
1: wife lived in a little town called Wolcott for about a year.
0: And that's near Oswego. Yes. And we would go up and play Oswego if it wasn't snowed out. Yeah. You know, just tremendous amount of snow in the area. We had about 100 and between 100 and 150 inches of snow every year.
1: When I went to visit her during that time, I remember there was the first time that I became acquainted with all the various names between there's like village, there's like town, berg, there was all these different designations. Yeah. I never heard of that. Is that is there is there like population uh descriptions for those like that makes them though the I have no idea. Yeah.
0: Okay. No idea. But But yeah, that's
1: that's when I first learned about it. And Syracuse, interestingly enough, was for some reason, I have no idea why, probably because they had really cool uniforms. It was one of the very first universities that I thought I wanted to go to. Mm.
0: I was like the Orange Men. I was like, that's so cool. Like, they're just orange. Well, the Newhouse School of Broadcasting is one of the two or three best in the country too. Oh, well, there you go.
1: But that was even before I knew I wanted to get into, into media. So who knows? Where'd you go to school?
0: I right out of high school, went into the seminary. Mm-hmm. So I did two years of novitiate, and that's basic study of spirituality. And then I went to Salamanca, Spain to study humanities. Mm. And then I went to Rome, and I did a total of eight years studying philosophy and theology in Rome. Mm. And I did two, three years, or three years of apostolic internship in Monterey, Mexico, Oh, beautiful. in between philosophy and theology. So we got Spain, we got Italy, we got Mexico, we got the US. Anywhere else you've lived? Um uh no, I have lived visited uh the Ghana in Ghana and in uh Brazil. Did oh, medical nice. missions for 5 years in Brazil. Wow. That what, was fascinating. Where in Brazil? Amazon jungles in the diocese of Itiquira that has 350,000 um, 350, people, but only nine priests.
1: These are the things that we hear about in the, the, the synod recently that took up this question yes. about um, you know, ordaining permanent deacons yes. to the priesthood, et cetera. True. That's the backdrop of that kind of thing.
0: Absolutely. But what was fascinating, they had this incredible bishop come in, and he went from nine priests... Two, he had ordained 29 priests when he uh, retired. Hmm. And um, he left, I think, about 35 priests in the seminary. So if there is truly great bishops and priests who put vocations as a priority, I think he also proves that you can get priests. yeah.
1: Uh, Just out of curiosity, what what was his uh, strategy, or was there a different
0: approach? Um, A lot of heavy emphasis on Eucharist, Mm -hmm. devotion to our Blessed Mother, Mm -hmm. and then he went around wherever he could to get scholarships to send him to the best seminaries in Brazil. Because there were seminaries that he felt, he told me, that were a little bit flaky. And then seminaries that really focused on evangelization, Eucharist, and and in-depth spirituality.
1: And I'm sure really, really good internal formation too.
0: Yes. So for him, that was, you know, when I can get really great priests, Mm -hmm. they're going to attract great young men.
1: So much so much of this, I'm sure, is driven, like all things, by where you find yourself in terms of time and space. But one of the things that I've talked about and preached on it a few times is, from an American context, the idea of vocations to the priesthood. And people have classified that as a crisis of vocations to the priesthood. I've heard this many times in media and in other places. But I've oftentimes re- you know, referred to this, and maybe it's a bit aspirational on my part, I don't know, so I want to get your thoughts, but as a crisis of invitation, or as a crisis of distraction, or as a crisis of interference, but it's hard for me to imagine that God has stopped calling men to the priesthood. But I'm trying to think of, well, why haven't we had
0: well I the think, results? I think you hit the nail on the head. I could not be more in agreement with you because I truly believe that, number one, we're not inviting Number two, I think there's a crisis in being happy in the priesthood. Hmm. Why did I join? Why did I become a priest? Because my brother always wanted to be a priest, and he found the Legionaries of Christ. Mm -hmm. So he entered. Older brother? Older brother. Okay. And then what happened? I went down to visit him because it was a road trip. I could get away from home and, you know, drive four and a half hours and have an adventure. Mm. And all of a sudden, I found these 25 seminarians who were living in a place that was really, really cold, and the food was terrible, and they couldn't have been happier. Wow. And so I scratched my head and go, first of all, we played hockey outside. There's a little river there. And they were really tough. And I'm going, wow, this isn't my idea of seminarians. But I began asking each one, why are you here? I mean, isn't it cold? And they go, yeah. Okay. They they don't like the cold, just like me. Number two, how about the food? Oh, well, (laughs) food's not all that great. Why are you here? We're here to save souls. I mean, can you imagine what it means to save one soul? Can you imagine what it means to save one family? Can you imagine what it means to bring people back to the purpose in their life that are are so lost? And if you know we're having the greatest invitation in the world, and if we can't sacrifice this, what does it mean about ourselves? We have to go and reconquer the world for Christ. I returned home, and I was at a party, and I was going on and on and on about how really cool these guys were, and my girlfriend turns to me and says, if you think it's so worthwhile, why don't you become a priest?
1: Your girlfriend said that.
0: Yes, at which everybody began to laugh. I I remember one person said, my goodness gracious, only you becoming a priest could cure insomnia (laughs) (laughs) and so um, I shut up drove her home and I was on Salt Springs Road in Fayetteville New York and that voice if it is so worthwhile why not because I want to get married because I want to do this that and the other and for four months I couldn't get that voice out of my head If it's so worthwhile—I mean, if we're really—this is really about saving souls. If it's really about bringing light into darkness. If it's really about bringing healing. If it's really about transforming a society that is so hurting, how in the world can you say no? Yeah, why would you? And so I said, okay, Lord.
1: Amazing. How could you not do it? Yeah. Were you—did you have much of a very strong Catholic upbringing, Father?
0: I did. And it was— Two parents who truly love the Lord and had a vision that we could not be normal, Hmm. that we had to be different. If we had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we had to be different. And a typical story that reflecting that really made an impact was my older brother. I think it was 73 or 74, but it was with the fall of Saigon, read in the New York Times that if families who were helping the United States didn't have a sponsor and were not allowed to come into the States, that there was a list and they would all be killed. Wow. And so my brother said, We can't be indifferent to this. So my parents had a family meeting they said, okay, um, If you want to have a family, you're going to have to make some real sacrifices. For example, for the first time in our life, we probably can't go to hockey camp, which was the most if the you know two weeks in St. Lawrence University and then two other weeks in locally that we would go and it just it was the most important part of our. I was gonna
1: say I was like saying you can't go to Disney World. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Number two, you probably will lose your rooms and will pack everybody into, you know, one or two rooms. Number three, you know, and they began saying all of these things. No vacation, no this, no that, no the other. Are you willing to make that sacrifice so that this family can come out of Vietnam? And we all said, Absolutely. Because in our family, the worst sin, indifference. So we were praying for people in Africa, in Eastern Europe, Latin America. And my parents would tell stories. And they never forced us to pray anything. Okay, we're going to pray the rosary now. No, it would always be, hey, your aunt is suffering this, that, and the other. Anybody want to pray the rosary for her? Or Cardinal Manzenti in Hungary, and he's alone in the United States Embassy. He can't get out. He can't do anything. And it must be so frustrating. Anybody want to pray for Cardinal Manzenti or Bishop Walsh in China? So they would tell these stories and then say, anybody want to pray? And we'd go, yeah. yeah
1: me. Yeah, those
0: dirty communists, we have to pray, for, you know, for freedom of this and free. And so we had these little kids growing up during that time who saw prayer as an incredible weapon and that we needed to do it. And they never talked about the vocation. Hmm. Never. But they always talked about, we can never be indifferent. And there's so many people who are suffering. And what are we going to do about them? At Sunday Mass, going to Sunday Mass, what was the one discussion? What are we going to offer up Mass for? Because there's infinite graces here. Amen. Going by a hotel or, excuse me, a hospital, we would always pray three Hail Marys so that no one in that hospital would let one ounce of their suffering go to waste and that they would all be able to unite their suffering with the suffering of Christ. So, you know, all of these things made it, in a way, a very militant attitude of charity.
1: Great way to describe it. Absolutely. Although I, I haven't heard that turn of phrase, but it's a very good one. Militancy in charity. Yes. It's almost like my brother, who's a Benedictine, talks about, um, St. Benedict would talk about the monks competing with one another in obedience, right? So this idea of, you know, trying to up yourself up, but in a virtue is is different than how we understand that type of competitive
0: thrust. Yes. So we couldn't be indifferent to anybody, to our neighbor, to anybody who was hurting because we were part of the mystical body of Christ. And we would talk about it. So it wasn't a holier-than-thou atmosphere. It was an atmosphere of
1: we can't be indifferent. It sounds like it was just a lived thing that you were kind of steeped in, which is beautiful. I mean— yeah thanks be to God for your parents and for your family who give you that kind of background. Similarly, I try to, you know, we, in our own way, we try to do similar things, you know, with our kids, mostly my wife, who's really good at this very creative kind of uh, apologetic, perhaps, or creative opportunity to get people excited about doing, um, you know, ministry and evangelizing and whatever it may be, right? I mean, doing the sign of the cross for every motorcycle guy who goes by because we ride motorcycles, mm-hmm. right? But those are little reminders, right? Stopping and uh, asking a homeless person their name and then having the kids pray for that person afterwards yeah. by name. Those are all really important things. I'm struck by one thing that you said, which has already become in this very short amount of time, a thematic that you've touched on a number of times. This idea of sacrifice and its counterpoint perhaps indifference, Right is something that I find in our world right now, L.A., 2021, time and place, right? Increasingly absent. The, this whole, even the, this idea of even what you talk about the seminary, I, you know, it's cold, the food's terrible. Why else? You know, how could I not do this? That uh, That desire to want to give, to sacrifice, to put aside for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of your fellow men, the idea of transformation through sacrifice all of this is pretty foreign particularly the younger you go the more close to the popular culture you get yes
0: absolutely and it's a huge problem one more story yeah my dad hit the beaches at normandy and he his two things he remembered number 1 the beaches were red with blood and number two, the smell of death. And he said, every single day, I still smell the smell of death. I've never been able to get rid of it since that day. And he survived the beaches of Normandy and was involved in the in an attack of a submarine base in Brest, France. And he got shot, and then a mortar shell went off and shattered his thigh and he thought he was going to die, and he yelled for medic, 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 and nobody came. And so he closed his eyes, and he said a prayer, and he said, Lord, I'm 18 years old. I thought I'd live longer than this, but if you want, I'm ready. I love you. But if I survive, I want to ask for the grace that every single day that comes around, that I see it as an absolute gift of love from you and a gift that I have to give back to you by loving my wife, my kids, and everyone around me, and that love will be the only thing that's important in my life, not ego, not money, not anything else. And as he's saying this prayer, he hears one, two, three, lift. And they were able to save his leg. One leg was three inches shorter than the other one. Wow. But um, because of that, He was the most sacrificial man I have ever seen. Everything was, the purpose of our life is sacrifice. Look at Christ. He did this for us. How can we not do it for him? So he demanded sacrifice. We got up early Saturday morning to work on the house that was 160 years old. (laughs) It was a horse farm that, you know, uh, didn't have any more horses, but we had to keep up. Big, you know, 150 acres. Um, But it was, this is the least we can do. And that whole thing of, this is the least we can do, because once we understand how much you're blessed, sacrifice is easy. If you don't have a real awareness of your blessing, then you're in trouble.
1: Wow. Is that then what is at
0: play here with this culture that we're in? I believe so. I I think we're not aware of our deepest blessings. We're so used to instant gratification that's cheap, that are the cheap blessings that don't stay with us. And the deeper spiritual blessings and the blessings that come from a family that's united, a family that prays together, a family that talks about deep things. Yeah. That's where we begin to receive tremendous perspective. And kids without perspective, they become the center of the world, incapable of understanding how blessed they really are. Mm. And they want, they think they did deserve everything.
1: Yeah.
0: If you compare, you will despair. So mm, they compare and they think the world owes them so much more.
1: I've sometimes thought about images of that concept of being at the center of the universe. Two of them come to mind from my own experience. One of them is the my brother was a musician coming up. He had a band, rock band. We had you know literally in the garage every Saturday they were playing, and every now and then there would be that squelch, you know, Mm -hmm. when you put a microphone too close to a speaker, and it's just this ear piercing, you know, squelch. And what happens there is when the microphone is brought too close to a speaker and it basically starts hearing itself, hearing itself, hearing itself. And then eventually that cycle accelerates so much that it just, and you get that for a moment, you have to shut off the microphones. Something similar happens to us as people when we focus on ourselves and that frequency goes so fast and eventually there's
0: crisis. Am I on, is that? Oh, I, I could not agree with you more, but I was meeting with a group of young adults the other day. It was Father's Day, and I said, can you tell me what was the biggest gift that you received from your dad, mm. and what was the thing that you wish you could have received? Wow. And everyone ran around, and it was like nobody could almost say anything good about their father's experience. And wow. it hit me like a wow. two-by-four that all of these young adults, I was the only one who said, oh, my dad was my hero. And they looked at me. I started telling stories and two or three of them began to cry. I bet. Because none of them had had this experience of love. If we're going to heal our society, we have to heal the family and we have to redefine and get back to the real definition a fatherhood and i think that in its leadership it's it's um it's calling to be another christ and not to be totally self-centered because what came out was these fathers who really never outgrew adolescence yeah and were really selfish and the kids saw it and it's sort of like they had to be in com- competition with dad because it was all about him and it gave them permission to be all about me.
1: Kind of like an arrested development in a way then from the...
0: Absolutely.
1: The, where, Absolutely. Is that generational? Where, where, does, where does that come from? Or I mean, I know where it comes from, I guess, based on everything you just said, but is it just this giant kind of blip in the generational sort of you know, sequence of things that gave us a lot of these type of father experiences at the same time? Is it... I think it's very
0: diverse. Okay. Um, I think different populations had different problems. Um, on the one hand, you have those who ran into tremendous wealth. I mean, when you think of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. What we have done. And you know, your parents were successful if they had thirty thousand dollars a year as a salary. Wow, that was everything in the 70s. Big money. Yeah. Big money. Yeah. And all of a sudden, so many were getting a hundred thousand, a hundred and fifty thousand, and it was intoxicating. And so intoxicating that they thought that they were giving their kids everything because it was four, five, six times more. And they truly did it out of love, but it wasn't what their kids needed. And in corporate America today, it's never enough. You're always dangling another $10,000 a year if you... And we justify it by saying, yeah, all these hours,
1: yeah, you know, it's intoxicating. It, yeah.
0: I, I can send my kid to this school or that school, and I'm doing it for them, and yet it's the cats in the cradle.
1: It's a bridge to nowhere. It's so funny you say this too, because I've remarked about the corporate idea of what you just described, which is every quarter must be larger than the quarter before it. Everyone in the works of the corporation understands that that's the objective. All of their metrics, their milestones, the way that they're viewed, their performance uh, reviews are all oriented to that idea of if we made a million dollars, we need to make a million to a million, whatever. And the rate of growth is never the same rate of growth that individuals are supposed to be uh, or consider normal right a cost of living increase, things like that it's never two percent it's twenty percent fifty percent but it's it's one of these automatics that's there we don't really question or scrutinize, but it drives a lot of the behavior you just described.
0: I went into Best Buy yesterday, and I, I laughed because eighty five inch screen <laughs> right right <laughs> uh, you know. Yeah, you know, now it's eight k. You it was four k, and, right. and I'm going. It's never enough, and it's all a
1: facsimile of reality, which makes it even worse sometimes to think about. It's like it's a lot of tech to show you what you could just look by
0: opening up your eyes. Yes, and so we're, there is so such little satisfaction, and it's a crisis, in, I believe, the church needs to demand so much more from its lay people, And when you demand a spiritual life that's really robust and healthy, the reward is hundredfold, okay? If just going to church more or less once a week, you know, and you need to fill out your envelopes support the church, and, and that's about it. The normal person is not going to be satisfied. And I think we need to change even the formation of our priest to say, hey, we're here to make saints. If we're here to make saints, I'm here to really believe in every single person in the pew, that they can be a saint, that they need to be a saint, and that that's where their happiness is. And the more excited I am about it, and the more I'm going to be able to demand, and I think there is one of the crises within the church is we're afraid to demand enough. And what we're really doing is we're condemning our people to mediocrity, and there's so much out there that's promising happiness that we have a mass exodus from our church. And so it's not, let's make it easier. It's, let's demand more, demand more mercy, demand more prayer, demand more sacrifice. And it's only there that we begin to feed our people what they need so, so badly.
1: This is all super deeply
0: scriptural too, right? Oh, this absolutely. idea
1: of the, you know, the church is a contradiction, the counterintuition of God, the last shall be first, the narrow gate is the, way to, is the way to the goal, not the wide gate. All of this idea of, you know, through things that are difficult and demanding, that are hard, that require sacrifice, that's how growth comes in. You know, you don't ever have to explain that to a bodybuilder or to an athlete of any kind. Of any kind. They understand that, oh yeah, I'm sore. It hurts. I ran this. If I don't do this, then I can't perform at that particular level. But we don't have that naturally reinforced in certainly the popular culture, but I see your point from a church perspective as well. And I think that the results are evident. One of the things that floored me when you and I first met, and I'm, I'll paraphrase the quote, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but I asked a question about what percentage, right? Because here you are running this Divine Mercy Clinic now, and and you have a a great history in in, in these kind of ministries. But I said, what percentage of psychological or wellness issues, because that's the word that's become very du jour of late, what percentage of those are, are driven by a spiritual dilemma, spiritual crisis, known or unknown? And your answer was, just, I don't remember the number. It was like 90%, 80%, something very high. There was a spiritual dimension that was happening there that was wrapped up in so much of what is happening to the, you know, psychologically and to maybe some, to a large extent, physically to a lot of
0: people because of the absence of that. Yeah. Well, what we see is there's a lot of psychological hurt and there's a real place for psychology and for healing. What I do is, we have a teamwork in our clinic. And all of our clinicians know that there's a moment where their client is going to get to look at his guilt face to face, to look at their sins, and to look at the re- deep regret, and they got to do something with it. So that's when they make an appointment with me. <laughs> in my office, I have this big, picture of the prodigal son by Rembrandt. And I bring them there and I explain to them what the picture is. The head of the prodigal son is on the chest, on the heart of the father. And I say, the heart of the father is a vacuum. And he wants to vacuum every single sin. He wants to vacuum up all of your guilt. And he really wants to vacuum up all of your shame and anger and darkness, once and for all. But you got to give it to him. You have to give it to him. And then look at his hands. His hands are on the sun's back. Mm. And so he's vacuuming in one way, and then he's giving back infinite love, infinite tenderness, infinite dignity infinite hope, infinite mission, because he's going to come away with a mission to love.
1: Mm.
0: And it is going to be the first day of his life that he is free to love. And I say, when you're ready, after contemplating this, then I'll hear your confession. Some people it's 10 minutes, some people it's an hour and a half. And then they make the most incredible confession of their life, And then they go back to therapy and all of a sudden it's like i have no shame (laughs) i you know and the amount of healing that can be done from there is breakthrough it's a breakthrough instead of crawling they're sprinting wow and it's all linked it's all linked it's not too many times it's one or the other it's both
1: father i have a proposition for you so and I'd love for, just for you to comment on it. Everything you just described is an approach to uh, counseling, psychology, what have you, that somebody maybe who's going to counseling right now not in a Catholic context or Christian context. It may sound very foreign to them, right? This whole view of human anthropology and this whole you know kind of backdrop of Christianity as a basis for it. But one thing is I heard you talk that I was thinking about here's a proposition. Someone who's not a believer, let's say they're an atheist, maybe they're even um, beyond skeptical, they're antagonistic to the faith. Seeking counseling support from a therapist or person who has the training and background that you and the people who work at the clinic have, versus somebody who's very devout and Catholic, going to a very secular uh counseling or psychological um you know place to get to get help it seems to me that it would it would still be possible for the atheist or somebody who's antagonistic to the faith to be able to be benefited and helped by the by this kind of approach you just described in a way but it also seems to be very possible that somebody who's very devout or 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 somebody who's who wants to follow their faith can be in some cases harmed by other forms of counseling potentially
0: yes well how i would put it is the following um i have three couples right now catholic is married to somebody who's a non-believer i've gotten to the first of all the non-believer has been very impressed on how i see human nature like that and is like wow
1: I, bet, I agree yeah. with that.
0: You know, that's that's something I can buy into. You know, you have the collar, which... Ah, yeah. But but th- there's something here. So they've listened, they've healed, and I have all three of them praying every day, saying, Lord, I don't know if you exist or not, but if you do...
1: Oh, yeah. It's perfect. Yeah, the agnostics prayer. It's yes. awesome.
0: I, you know, I need... To do this, that, and the other. Okay? So they're praying that three, four times a day, and some of them more. And they're coming in. Now, to Catholics who are going to people who are secular, and you can even have Catholic psychologists or counselors who are formed in such a secular way that their vision of the human person. Is very secular and very wrong. Okay. And in doing that, they can do a tremendous amount of harm. That, you know, God has nothing to do with this. Love has nothing to do with this. What's best about you, you know, your feelings and things like that? And the situation of your kids, the situation of others should not even come into it. Catholic says, no. It's the whole person and your relationships, everything comes into it. <laughs> and it, 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 it's very, very different. Now, on the other hand, there are good secular people who can help with good sure. with problems and be very effective. And very, very effective. It's just that it's you know it depends on the problem. And there are some secular people who are very anti-religion. And they say that the problem is, as uh, Jung and Freud would say, guilt. Guilt, you shouldn't feel guilty. And the Catholic Church would say it's what you do with your guilt. If you stuff it and pretend it doesn't exist, it has huge bad repercussions. And even if not all the guilt, but some portion of it could just be your conscience actually weighing in. And which says, you need to change. And you need then you need to do something with the guilt, that's give it to God. And then guilt's been a gift, because you were doing something that was hurting yourself and hurting others. Hmm. Guilt is a gift. And when we know how to use it, we're free to love better. And if so, you have somebody beginning to have problems in their marriage, and mm-hmm. their conscience says, mm, you're being selfish. If they say, no, no, no guilt's bad, I'm going to ignore it, that selfishness is just going to grow and grow and grow and things are going to get worse. But that
1: seems to be the calling card of a lot of what I hear out there is you got to take care of you. You do you. I mean, this is all becoming, its it's been memefied at this point, right? It's, Absolutely. Th- this idea of me at the center.
0: And ultimately it only brings sadness and more self-centeredness and that never brings happiness what's the
1: kind of the the thumbnail view of human anthropology like how would you describe it to somebody if you're riding up in an elevator from the first floor to the 10th
0: okay well first of all if you're interested divine mercy university which started a little over 20 years ago because there was no catholic university that united a Catholic anthropology with the best of psychology. And we were really frustrated because we had just opened up a retreat center in Washington, D.C., and saw so many people who were hurting and needed good psychologists. Yes. But almost all of the psychologists that we knew who were Catholic did not have a Catholic anthropology and were hurting their people more yeah, than helping. Kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. So we did something absurd and we started. Divine Mercy University. We first called it the Institute for the Psychological Sciences. Mm-hmm. And we went all over the country, and we got the best four or five professors. And for the last 20 years, we have been working on one tome of the what it means to have Catholic anthropology and psychology, and it's just come out. And I'll try to get you a copy of I it. I love it's, that. It's incredible. But it's— An anthropology that says that we've fallen, that there is original sin, but that we've also been redeemed, and there's something called grace. And and so it's a very positive anthropology. It's one that says sin is our enemy, but we also can collaborate, and we're not on our own. And when we're weak, we can find our strength in God. And there is something called virtue. And to understand how the virtuous person can grow in virtue is absolutely important. And um, what are the ways for that virtue to be within a community to be fostered, whether it be in my family, whether it be in my parish. So it's it's, I think a Catholic anthropology is a Ultimately, really positive one, of course. Um, when you get into other Christian anthropologies or um, secular anthropologies, you get into either determinism, mm-hmm. I'm like that, well, I can't do anything. And it's just it's really sad and frustrating. Or you are so bad, you're a sinner. What did Luther say? Sure. It's
1: like a, we're a vile dung heap. Dung, uh, yeah, snow, co- uh, dung covered snow f- heap or something. Yes. Yeah.
0: And, and so, you get <laughs> it's those tough, tough
1: to bounce back from that one.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and they're the, so why even struggle? Why even struggle? Why bother? Yeah. Why bother? Wow. So, the really Catholic anthropology is filled with hope and filled with healing and the ability of healing, but it says, hey, Sin can do a terrible, terrible, terrible damage to the human psyche, and we need to be patient, and the road to healing can take an entire lifetime, mm-hmm. but you can heal, and you can get better and better and better, but it's, it's it's there's a realism there that's very
1: important. I think also the recognition of the importance of the concept of person, too, at least— you know, especially when you compare it with what we hear today on and off again, with and without the popular culture. But this idea that we believe that, you know, intellect will reason oriented uniquely around this person and that, you know, body, mind, soul, all of them are integrated in this reality as opposed to, you know, this compartmentalization that's kind of seems to be supported by a lot of things like, oh, take care of your you know, go to meditate here and do this over here, and it's like it's all this
0: compartmentalization if you absolutely. Like. You hit the nail on the head. absolutely and And that's why I think this is a this gift of a whole new perspective on the human person is a gift to the entire human race. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that Divine Mercy University is doing, it's teamed up with McLean Hospital, which is one of the most important psychiatric hospitals in the country and it's out of Harvard and there is a Jewish man who is um, in charge of it and he has last 30 years done all these studies on how the Jewish faith has an influence on psychology and now he's found he said now you guys are Catholic he said this is really important so he's teamed up with us to do all these studies on how faith affects the human psyche. And I'm sure the data there are pretty compelling, no? It's incredibly compelling, yes. And it's been so compelling that it started to have an effect with the APA, which traditionally has been extremely negative towards religiosity. Hmm.
1: Is, there a, is there a self-preservation aspect of
0: that? Well, I think the studies well, are just so blatant that they cannot say no. It's like you kind of have to, yeah, you have to acknowledge
1: something that undermines what you've been doing.
0: And when Harvard comes in and says, hey, we're finding these things. Yeah. They tend to listen a little bit more. It's fascinating. You, your father. You're also,
1: um, you know, a priest of the Legionaries of Christ, uh, and I didn't know you were ordained by Pope John Paul II. Yes, Pope John Paul, same Saint John Paul the Great. Yeah,
0: with my two brothers on the same day.
1: Wonderful! Wow, wow. How how was that? What was that like?
0: Um, just very, very special. There, you know, only imagine. So my closest friends and um, great guys, and uh, to be ordained with them was 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 very special. I
1: was ordained two weeks apart from my brother. And I got a chance to actually serve at his uh Thanksgiving Mass, and that was mind blowing. In little Montebello or wherever we were, I could only imagine you being in Rome and, you know, by the Pope, by the Holy Father. Wow. Super compelling. Well, what I wanted to ask was about the legionary spirituality. Mm-hmm. I don't I kn- I don't know it myself personally, but I'm curious how, if at all, it influences
0: or has come into the work that that you've been doing. Well we say we have a christ-centered spirituality which is we need to constantly ask the question what would christ do how does christ see this what does christ desire about this um i was we were called up by the archdiocese of washington dc back in 1990-91 we had just been ordained been assigned to washington dc hardly had anything there. We had problems paying the electric bill. And the Archdiocese said that there was a big retreat center being sold, and that the only people who were interested in buying it were non-Catholics, and would we be interested? And so I went with this other legionary priest, and my attitude was, four or five years from now, maybe, but I mean— how in the world can we ever make this happen? And he he, he let me talk, and then he said, are we asking the right question? If we have a Christ-centered, I mean, really Christ-centered spirituality, isn't the question, what does Christ want? And there was like two minutes of silence. And it was like, well, are you up to shaking every bush and every branch to make this happen because if we have this we can have a family center we can have a center of evangelization we can have a center for healing we can and we began to dream and all of a sudden it was something that had to happen wow and with 4 months we got enough for the down payment and since then we've had 20,000 people go through it it's been an incredible gift for the church but for me, that's that's the our prayer has to be, Lord, I am called to be another Christ. I am called to put aside my John Hopkins a little bit and truly become you. And that means a lot of prayer time and a lot of time in contemplation. The second thing about the Legion is we look for lay people and to challenge them to be leaders within the church. We're here not to do everything ourselves. We're here to awake a giant bear that can go and change the world. And so we're specialists in helping lay people become saints and disciples and people who are going to change the world. That's our
1: charism. One of the greatest priorities of the Second Vatican Council was to achieve
0: exactly that end. Yes. So that's why we specialize in spiritual direction, retreats. Um, and and all of these centers, you know, it's it's not just ourselves; it's it's a whole team. team. It's, it's 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 one priest getting together twenty other people and making this happen. So that's that's what attracted me to this to, to, to the congregation. That it's not about clericalism; it's about helping each layperson understand that they. Can do infinite work for our Lord and culture, mm.
1: and then I sort of understand your own, the, their own priesthood in a way, right? Their own absolutely, their own universal priesthood. Because oftentimes, I don't think that they regard regarded in that way. To the same point you made a moment ago, it's like, oh well, that's that's father's job, or that's deacon's job, or that's the bishop's job, or whatever it is. But we lose track of the fact that if you know we're baptized into that 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 priesthood ourselves and can offer our lives as a sacrifice in whatever it is that
0: we do, and Ephesians 3.20. Hmm. The power that's already within you can do infinitely more that, that you could ever imagine or ask. And that's not just for priests, that's for each layperson. When you think about that, the power that's already within them, which is the Holy Spirit. And we need to stop blocking God. If we just do that, not block him from his initiatives, not block him from the love that he wants to express through us not block God from his vision for the future for our church and for our culture wow and it strikes
1: me that oftentimes we block God with ourselves yes our fears our ego so many things wow what's the what's the vision if to the extent you can share it about you know the future obviously the work that you're doing right now is helping tons of people and i know that there's other you know, aspirations that you have for the, for this yeah. current work, but what's the vision, Father?
0: Well, what I'm trying to do in Los Angeles and Southern California is within 10 years, I want to have 10 different family centers so that any family in Southern California that is hurting and needs any help with family can find it hmm. without regard to money or anything else, can find counseling, can find... A retreat for marriage preparation, marriage renewal, can learn how to parent from a Christian point of view, can learn how to reconcile with their brothers and sisters. We have to bring back the family. We have to have retreats about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. We have to recover fatherhood. And so what I envision is all over the Los Angeles area, to team up with other groups, to have these centers available so that the church is shouting, we're not indifferent. We have something for you. You're not alone. Don't get depressed. Don't give up. Come to us. We're going to fight for you. Mm. And then we're going to help you fight for other families.
1: Scripture says that the bulwark of the church, the bulwark of truth is— is, um am sorry, the bulwark of the Church of the Living God um, is, uh, well, I got that mixed up, but I was going somewhere with this, that I think it's the bulwark of truth is the church. I believe that's the scripture. But it strikes me that families are the bricks in that structure.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And and, and we, we look at these things very kind of rationally and perhaps a bit too... Um, Practically, about oh, family can be this; it can be that. Sometimes it's X, Y, Z. It is what it is, but there's a reason for things. There's a reason for that for 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 family and its importance, and it's so central to this edifice that is the church. And so, when those bricks are missing or broken or damaged or what have you, and they need repair, it's for the benefit of something broader than just the brick, right? Am I am I making sense there?
0: Absolutely, and. Once that brick that's a living stone Mm -hmm. is healed, what it can do for all the other bricks is unbelievable. Mm. And in my own experience, when you go and you heal a family, and that family becomes apostolic and go and heal it heals others. And they're the ones giving talks on on family life. And they're the ones helping schools become more Catholic and more holy. And they're be- and it's like you stand back. The network back. effect. It is. The ne- and all of a sudden, it doesn't depend on the priest.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: You know, I am in charge of forming the people who are going to form everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I help with retreats. But I, am trying to get a, you know, get out of the way of the lay people, because they have to embrace this and make it their own. And that's the only way we're going to really tra- transform our church and our culture.
1: Mm. First Timothy three fifteen. This is what I was trying to go for a second ago that I kind of butchered. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and bulwark of the truth. That's the, that's the, <laughs> the quote I was going for. I knew there was something about bulwark in there, but well said. Father, I know we have to get you um, on your way pretty soon here, but I'm curious of people listening to this want to, you know, follow this work, want to get involved in this, want to, you know, see frankly how their family, how their brick can benefit from this. And there's a lot of that need. Otherwise you wouldn't be here having this conversation and thinking about doing more of this. How do they, how do they follow what you're doing? how do they get in touch? How do they know what you guys are up to?
0: Well, if you want to go online to dmclinic.org, um, or if anybody would like to send me an email at J Hopkins at Legionaries.org is the other way. I'd be happy to um, get a hold of anybody. Uh, because this is exciting, but you know, I, I think that this has to be the beginning of something that we see all over the country and all over the, the world. We have to take back our families. And too many people would complain, 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 but we don't know what to do. And my attitude is, let's all stop complaining, and let's be constructive and do something.
1: Amen to that. Well, you're definitely doing something, Father. And so, uh, you know, my uh, my prayers are for the prospering of that ministry and that work, and uh, it's been a real privilege to get to know you, albeit briefly, but I I definitely feel that, uh, you know, we're not big on coincidences in the church. So I'm sure that there's more um, at play. So our final segment, Father, is a very famous, very famous segment called Wait What? And I'm going to ask you a few rapid fire questions. This is when we find out what Father's really about, (laughs) Father's really about, okay? So are you ready to play? I am. Okay, and take as long as you need. And no particular order, okay? Here we go. If you had to pick which of either Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung would have made the better NHL defenseman?
0: (laughs) Carl Jung. Why? He was less of a misogynist. Okay. (laughs)
1: I thought you were going to say he could skate better or something. <laughs> but what position did you play when you played, by the way? Center. Center. Okay. Would, would, would your answer change if I said who had made a better NHL center? <laughs> no. no. Still would have been Young. Something tells me he could probably throw a body check a little bit better than Sigmund yeah. Freud. So I think I'd go with you, too. The whole, like, embracing the shadow and all this other stuff probably makes a pretty decent uh, defenseman. All right. That was the first one. Here we go. Question number two. In light of the places that you've lived, Father... For the next two weeks, you are allowed—or perhaps I don't know—maybe your superior tells you you have to, okay? But you're allowed one particular dish for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, just one. Does that dish come from the culinary wealth of Atlanta, Spain, Los Angeles, or Rome?
0: Rome. Rome. Ah,
1: uh, I, I love Italian. Slam dunk. Good Italian food is ah. Uh, that's the one, huh? Oh, that's the Do you one. You have particular dish because this is breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the next two weeks. You know,
0: I it's almost anything. I yeah.
1: I, I love the Italian cuisine. There's a I never remember the name of this, but just uh, not too far from the is it the not the Parthenon the Pantheon the Pantheon, one around the Pantheon. Right. There's a beautiful little cafe, and it actually has Seminarian in its name in Italian. And it's apparently a place where a lot of the seminarians go to in Rome to eat. And it's very inexpensive. We went there once in Rome. I was blown away by the food. I can't remember the name. Scholastica? Maybe, maybe. But it was this great little place. And I mean, they just had the pasta of the day and it was so fresh and it was just amazing. No, just
0: Yes, there, there, there are more little hole in the wall places in Rome and Florence and all over. And if you go to the big restaurants, you're in trouble. Yeah. You go the to these ones. little ones that, oh.
1: Well, even though you did not, you know, pick Spain, which of course, you know, ties back yes. to uh, still Rome is, I mean, you no, Spain
0: was my second choice. Spain was second
1: choice. Good food in Spain. All right. Final question, Father. An Augustinian and a Thomist participate in a survival competition whereby, yeah. <laughs> this is interesting, whereby they must be homeless in a major urban city center for 30 days. After their experience, who writes the bigger book? The Thomas, <laughs> the
0: Thomas, without a doubt.
1: I think so too. Without a doubt,
0: you know, they're going to give that experience the 360. And
1: uh... I'm with you. I think Diego one will be maybe a little bit more colorful, but I think the the Thomas would get it in terms <laughs> of just sheer girth about that experience. Uh... Father, real great privilege to have you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure um, to be here. God bless you and all your ministry and all your work. And I ask for the Lord to continue to prosper it. And uh, we ask for everybody listening, obviously to have you and the team and their prayer and all the families that you're helping. So, um, But thank you once again for, for being on the show. My pleasure. Okay. Amen. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show. And spread the word. Living the call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's call-usa.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.